Amen. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 55, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles provided for you at the center of each aisle on the floor. You can just grab one there or ask someone to pass one down to you. Uh, please take that with you. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to have it, and we'd love to, uh, love to talk to you about what you read there. Isaiah 55 um, is, is the next stop in our overview of the way that Isaiah talks about God's plan to redeem all that's broken about this world. We've been unpacking it layer by layer. We saw it has to do with a king who's going to come one day to establish peace once and for all, a wonderful counselor and a mighty God, an everlasting father. We've seen that that same king will also be a servant who will suffer, mysteriously claiming power by giving up power. And now, as of last week, we've started to unpack the new world that's possible because the servant has suffered for our sins and risen from the grave once and for all. Last week in chapter 54, we saw that the first response to to the work that the servant has done in the famous chapter 53 is to sing and to celebrate. This is a new day. Nothing remains the same because of what the servant has done. Today we take another step in that same direction to understand the fruits of victory what it is that the servant has done for us. Called this sermon, The Quantity and the Quality of God's Redemption. That's kind of a nerdy and academic way to say it, I think, because basically, if you're not not ever done much research, uh, there's kind of two ways to come at a problem. If you want to learn about something, if you want to study it, analyze it, you can do a quantitative analysis or a qualitative analysis. Quantitative analysis is to see how many of something there is. How far does it go? What's the scope? What's, what's involved in it? Um, who is it true of? If you want to do a qualitative analysis, you're asking, what's it like? And what sort of, what sort of thing is this that I'm studying? What characteristics, characteristics does it have? What, what effects does it have? In a quantitative analysis, you've got to be able to count absolutely everything. In a qualitative analysis, you can take one thing and study it really close and figure out what it's like. I think this, this, uh, this section of Isaiah 55 does a little bit of both in unpacking for us what the servant has accomplished, the new world that's possible because the servant has suffered and has been exalted. It tells us how far the effects of what the servant has done extend. That's the quantitative part. It tells us who it's for, how, how many people it's for. And then it also helps us understand a little bit more about what the servant did for us, the quality of it. What does it feel like? What does it do to us that the servant has, has died and, and risen again? We're going ta- to take a look at both of those layers in Isaiah 55. If you found it, please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read it, and then we'll, di- we'll dive into the details. This is the word of the Lord from Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. 
Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to start with quantity. So how far did the benefits of what the servant has done extend? Maybe even more precisely, who are these benefits for? I have never once in my entire life been happy to hear that someone else won the lottery. Right? That is a sort of good news. But it's not for me. It's, not, it's quantitative scope doesn't extend to my household. So just hearing that the servant has suffered and that he's risen again and that this new world of peace is possible isn't necessarily good news unless we know how far the benefits of this servant's work extend. In fact, are they for us and who else might they be for? That's what Isaiah 55 begins with. The answer it gives is pretty plain. The benefits of what the servant has done are for everybody who thirsts, everyone who thirsts. What I want to do is take that really simple, straightforward answer and try to unpack the layers of implication that are there because they are huge. Here's layer number one. I'm going, to go th- I'm going to go through three layers, I think, of this one simple phrase that everybody who thirsts can come to the waters because of what the servant has done. Who is, that? Who is the everyone there? Let's try to unpack it first. This work is for you if you're thirsty. This work is for you, all of you, if you're thirsty. Now, I don't want to re-preach last week in chapter 54, but I at least want to point you back there. The message of that text, the glorious, beautiful, captivating, compelling message of that text is that what you have done, who you have been, who you have failed to be, is not who you are if you trust in Christ. That God's work through Jesus can reframe your entire past and it can secure your future once and for all. That's the message of chapter 54. And the implication is that that means there is no one who has done too much to be saved by the work of the servant. There is no one who is too far gone. Don't believe the lie that what you have done makes you too far gone for the grace of God to reach you, transform you, and set you up with a new life a new identity on every level. In fact, I think what verse 1 means is that the more you recognize your failure, the more clearly you see your sin, the thirstier that you are, the more qualified you are to receive the work of the servant. The more qualified you are, in other words, to receive the redemption God holds out to you. It's, it's actually your thirstiness. It is your poverty. It's the fact that you have no money to buy anything with that qualifies you to, for a stake in what God has done for you through Jesus. In other words, don't wait till you can muster up some set level of certainty that God can save you. Don't sit on the sidelines until you think you're good enough, until you think you're confident enough in his promises. The only question that matters, for you to connect with what God offers you in Jesus, the only question that matters is, are you thirsty? 
Is what else you've been turning to for satisfaction holding you up? If not, if you find yourself empty, that's the only thing that matters. Not how confident you are that God can deliver on his promises. Turn to him now because you sense your thirstiness and he will save you. That's the promise of this text. Come all who are thirsty. Come to the waters. Come those who have no money. Buy and eat. He will be there. Do you know that you need it? It's only... It is only not for you if you don't think you need it. If you think you're good, then this text isn't for you. And if that's where you are this morning, please remember that this offer has been standing for nearly 3,000 years, and it'll be there for you when you come to realize that you're not okay. Don't forget that. But don't wait too long. You're going to die. It's for you if you're thirsty. The next layer, and this one is, this one is just as beautiful, just as radical, just as true to all that Isaiah is after. It's for the whole world. This offer, what the servant has done, this new world that's possible, it's extended to the nations, to the ends of the earth. A lot of times I think we associate the sort of the spread of the gospel, the missionary impulse with the New Testament, with Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, Paul and other missionaries scattering out to the ends of the earth. I think it's a New Testament thing, but it's not. It is, but it's, it's not just a New Testament thing. It's actually all through the Old Testament. And Isaiah is one of the clearest books about this, that God's plan is to redeem the world that he will call for himself a people from every tribe and tongue, that he will go to nations, that the way that verse 5 puts it, he will go to nations you haven't even heard of, and nations that haven't even heard of you, that don't even know you exist, are going to come to you. That God will make himself so glorious in his people, verse 5 says, because of the Lord your God, who has glorified you, the nations will come to the people of God like a magnet. They'll be drawn in by them. They will see the glorious nature of God and the, and the precious promises that he offers and they will be won over. Now don't miss how radical this would be in its own time and in our time. What it said in its own time is that God, the God of Israel, is not some tribal deity. He is not a God of you and your family or of people who share your lineage. He is the God of the world. The same God that made the world is committed to remaking the world. That's the claim. And this was unheard of in Isaiah's time. All the deities were, were thought to be special to a specific people and have sort of power that was limited to them, but not this one. His power extends over everything because he's made it all, and he has the power to remake it. It's radical in our day, too, because what it says, what it says is that this God is the one and only, the implication is that he is the one and only sufficient Savior for anyone from anywhere. That there is no other name under heaven by which men might be saved than this name. And his commitment is to win for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and to show by that, by that victory that he is the one true God of the universe. He will glorify himself by showing himself strong enough to save anybody from anywhere. And the question for us in that is, do we have a love that is as global as God's love? 
are our horizons in our prayer life, in our spending patterns, in our interests, our engagement, as broad as God's horizons are. From the beginning, God's plan has been to redeem people from all over the world. It is a promise that peoples that haven't even been identified by us yet will actually come to worship him someday. And it's a calling, implicit in it, is a calling to be part of that work. So the question for each of us is, the one we should leave asking ourselves is, how is my life intersecting with this plan that God is going to bring about one way or another? You realize there are opportunities, even right now, in our own city, through our own congregation, to engage with people who, before coming to America, likely had never even heard of Jesus. To be part of this incredible thousands and thousands year old plan of God to draw people that you've never even heard of into his people by the power of their life and their witness. You can be part of that today if you want. We can help you with that. If you aren't, the question is why not? What, what have you not yet connected with about this plan that God has that you would be able to live your life without thinking of the nations? That's a, that's a serious question to ponder. And here's the third and last layer. Who is this for? That's the question we're asking. Quantitative question. How far does the benefit of the, of the, the servant's work go? One last layer. This one's not directly in the text, but more of an implication of it. If it's for you because you're thirsty, and it's for people no matter where they come from, then it's also for people you would rather not love. The implication is that the quantity extends to people that you would rather not love. If the promises of God's redemption are offered to everybody who's thirsty, if weakness and poverty and empty-handed trust is the only standard for getting a stake in these promises, then that means there is nobody in your life that's beyond the saving reach of God's love, no matter how deeply they have hurt you. There is no one who should stay beyond the reach of your love because you have been marked by God's love. I think this is where the text works on us and works on Pharisees from every era, works on prophets like Jonah who didn't want to see the Ninevites come to faith. It works on all of us here. I think we we, we tend to look at the, the expansion of the gospel into the nations and the problems that that caused for Jews, almost look down on that with a kind of condescension. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm the only one who does this. I, think, I, I, mean, I don't have any problem with somebody from another country you know, connecting with God's promises. That's not me. But there are, other, there are other, uh, other ways of being divided from people than just race and ethnicity. And the same truth about the extent of these promises that drove people to the Gentiles and caused all the problems that the book of Acts tells us about is a truth that should drive us to people that have done us wrong or to people who are just maybe a little bit weird and socially awkward and it's not fun to be around them to people who aren't going to get you anywhere that aren't going to unlock this new social world you want to be a part of are you, is your love as expansive as God's love in other words are there people that you would rather not see come to him and receive these promises Are there people you're not willing to go to with these promises? That's the question that I think we're all invited to to ask ourselves by the incredible truth that God's promises through the servant are for everyone, everywhere, who will come to him with their thirst.
Now, that's the quantitative part. Where I really want to spend the rest of our time, where I want to drill down even more deeply, is on the qualitative part. Well, this is qualitative again. It's about what's it like? What's this thing that we're looking at look like? And we've already seen some of that in chapter 54, where the, 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 the first response to the death of the servant and the new world that he makes possible is to talk about what it means for us on the, from the outside in. What you might call the, the objective part. It's outside of us. It's a promise that says you are not who you were because of the work that this servant has done. You can take on his track record as yours and you can offload your track record in your past as his and that exchange will stand forever because God has said it will. He, is, he has declared you to be somebody new. That's outside of you, right? That's a declaration that stands over you and isn't subject to you. This text gets more at what, it, what the salvation God promises us feels like to us, inside of us. What it does, what the change that happens in us when we connect with and believe in the promises that have been made through the servant. It has to do with satisfaction. Because of Jesus, God offers you true satisfaction because he offers to give you himself. That's the very simple statement that comes out of this, these, especially out of verses uh, 1 to 3. God offers you true satisfaction that you can't get anywhere else because he offers to give you himself. Now, I want to unpack that point because there's a lot in there. Uh, and, and, and there are many, several layers we could, we could peel back. I want to focus on three steps this morning to understand what it means to be satisfied by God himself in a way that you can't be satisfied by anything else. I want to focus on the problem of dissatisfaction. I want to make sure we understand the, the problem so we'll be ready to see the solution. The promise of true satisfaction, that's the second thing, the second layer we'll look at. That's what God offers us when he offers us himself. And finally, the path to true satisfaction. What makes it possible for us to be satisfied in God? Brings us back to the work of the servant. That's where we're headed. Three layers. I want to start with the problem of dissatisfaction. It's one of, the, one of my favorite verses in this passage is verse 2. It's a timeless question. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? If we think about that one, it should strike us to the core. It's like it has every person who's thought seriously about it since it was written 3,000 years ago. Why are you spinning your wheels, stressing over giving yourself over to things that aren't delivering for you. Certainly should have struck Israel to the core. It was their experience. One of the things we've seen earlier in our study of Isaiah is how they had really turned to all the wrong sources for satisfaction. They were looking for security and love in all the wrong places. They turned to the powerful nation, to their north and, and east, thinking that if they could just get Assyria on their side, then everything would be okay. And what did Assyria do? They took over. They turned to the gods of their neighbors because they looked like they were delivering more for Assyria than their god was delivering for them. So they're going to switch allegiances and they, they form idols with their hands and they, they try to get things out of these gods. They wanted gods they can control and they couldn't make them secure. They tried exploiting the weak and that didn't make them powerful. They were left by all that they had sought, penniless and thirsty. That's where Israel is when this text comes to them. It's looking ahead to them in exile preparing to return, and they have nothing. And isn't this exactly what you've experienced? How much of what we work over, of what we stress over, even if we get it, I don't know what it is for you. I mean, just insert this 
Insert your own experience here. What is it that you work for that consumes your life, stress over? And how many times, even when you get that thing, have you found it to run dry? And even, it leaves us wanting more, but even, even for the brief moment under the best of circumstances when it does seem to satisfy us, it can't ultimately stop us from dying. Death is going to be the end to whatever satisfaction we might get out of this thing we're working for and stressing over. I read a quote this week from a Columbia professor named Andrew Delbanco. That, boy, it, just, it describes a sort of satisfaction as good as well as I have ever seen it described. This, this satisfaction with all the things we give ourselves to and stress over, it's a dissatisfaction that comes to us as, a, as the lurking suspicion. This is Delbanco. The lurking suspicion that all our getting and all our spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. Oh, that's it. And at what a cost to us. I love that verse 2 talks about it as a spending. Like we are spending ourselves relationally, psychologically, even physically in our quest for satisfaction. I don't know of any more effective artistic expression of human dissatisfaction than AMC's hit drama Mad Men, which is, which is running right now. now. I'm not giving an unqualified suggestion that you go out and watch the show. Like most things in a fallen world, it's a mixed bag. Um, it, it depicts the darkness of sin, and sometimes it can even evoke it in you in ways that, that may not be healthy. It's something that you should, uh, I'll leave to your conscience. But what I will say is that this show is the most relentlessly ethical show in modern popular culture. I don't think there's any question about that. And by ethics, I don't mean it it portrays the way you ought to be. I mean, it's a show that's about the good life. In old Greek philosophy terms, that's what ethics is. What, what makes for a good life? How could we figure that out? And what would it look like? And that's what this show is all about. And it's an a- excellent case study in it because it, it takes these 1950s and 60s advertising men, these guys who have the world at their fingertips. They are elite white men in the center of the most powerful city, culturally and financially, in the most powerful nation in the world, at the time that, in all of history, was the best possible time to be an elite white man. They have the world at their fingertips. And they are using all of their resources to strive for the good life. They turn to woman after woman. They turn to drink after drink. To new house after new house, and new car after new car, and typically they feel nothing at all. When they do feel anything, the next morning they feel guilty and hungover. Every woman gets boring. Every drink has to be followed by another. Every professional success lasts maybe 30 seconds before they got to start working on signing the next client just to stay alive. The central character sums up, I think, the, whole, the gist of the whole show. What is happiness? He asks. It's a moment before you need more happiness. Sounds about right, doesn't it? Unless, unless, unless God is trustworthy when he says, come to me, that your soul may live. This text gives us a promise of true satisfaction. The the whole passage that we've read is laced through with the promise of true and deep and lasting joy at the core of who you are. Not just scratching an itch somewhere, not just a momentary pleasure, but a deep satisfaction. It's what the Bible means when it talks of peace. It's not just the end to war. 
It is a full and fruitful, flourishing life. It is shalom, which touches everything and every, everyone in this world. I think it comes, this promise of deep and lasting satisfaction comes through beautifully in the images of this text. I hadn't noticed this until this week when the commentators pointed me to it on how the, the promise of water, milk, and wine builds on each other to describe this full-orbed satisfaction. Water is, is, is what we need to quench our thirst. Milk nourishes us and helps us to grow. Wine is about joy and delight and partying with each other. It's this full-orbed look at what a, a, a flourishing and happy and good life can be. And it's a promise that it's available in God. It's a call to eat what is good, not ashes. That was the, one of the images that was given earlier in Isaiah. Don't run anymore to ashes and feed yourself on ashes. The promise is of, is of food that isn't like marshmallows that look substantive, but it's just a bunch of air. Or cocoa puffs. Looks like food, but it isn't. You know, it's created in a laboratory somewhere. The promises of food that's rich and brings delight. These are the images. Now, verse 3 explains the substance. Verse 3 says, Incline your ear and come to me. Up until this point, it's been come to the water. Come without any money. I'll give you milk and wine. And verse 3 tells you what he's talking about. Come to me that your soul may live. Now, the point is that in God, not what God gives you, but in God is true satisfaction in this life and the life to come. But that, as simple as as that point is in this text, I find it to be very hard to connect with for a few reasons. I want to spend a few minutes, I know we're spending a lot of time on this point, I think it's because it's the heart of this text, and, and, and I want to spend at least a few more minutes unpacking what it would mean to be satisfied in God rather than in the things in this world that Israel had substituted for him. I want to I point towards one thing that I think can help us connect with being satisfied in God, and then I want to I try to clear up a couple of possible misperceptions about what this is. So here's, here's the positive spin on what this might mean and how we might go for it. I think, I think it's hard to connect with what it would mean to be satisfied in God himself because we know what it is to be satisfied in a good meal, right? We know what that tastes like, what it feels like afterwards. Um, it's tangible. It's right there in front of us. We can, we can literally touch it and, and taste it. But how can we be satisfied like that in God? That's a huge question. It's, it's way too big for today. Um, I'd love to talk to you about it in much more detail after today if you're interested. There's some help to be had, even though it's abstract. There are a couple of books that have helped me more than any others. I would say, if you have the time and the interest, read John Piper's book called Desiring God. It's all about this. It's all about delighting and being satisfied in God himself. And even more, one of the books that's influenced me more than any other, one of my favorite books in Christian history, is uh, The Confessions, written by St. Augustine. It's much of it is given to this question of what is the good life and what does it look like to be satisfied in God and in all other things only for God's sake. It's a hard read, but it's worth your time. For now, here's where I want to point you to. I know you can't see God, you can't touch Him. And so satisfaction in God is different from satisfaction in other things. But I think this text points us to what it would look like for us now, waiting on His return, waiting until we see Him face to face to be satisfied in Him directly. 
I think it has to do everything to do with God's word. Now look, look at look at the way the um, the way verse two and three set this up. What is it, what is the call? Listen to me, right? Hear what I am saying to you, and you'll be satisfied. Verse three: Incline your ear to me. Listen to what I'm speaking to you, and you will have satisfaction in me. And then even later, in chapter fifty-five, beyond what we're going to look at today, verse. 10 and 11, talk about the power of God's word, that it always accomplishes what he sets it out to do, that that he sends it out and it bears fruit and it never returns void. It is powerful to do the job. And what I think this is meant to tell us is that if we want to be satisfied in God, the place to start is with his word, to engage with him in the Bible, even when it doesn't seem like it's paying off, even when it's not that interesting, even when we aren't sure that we even believe it. If you want to test out a relationship and whether or not a person can deliver on what they've promised, the way to do it is to talk it out with them, right? To hear from them, to test what they say. And God's word is where we go for that. So if you want to be satisfied in God himself in this life, right now, as we wait for his return, what it looks like is to engage with his word. I know that sounds basic, but it's true. Engage with his word. Do you? Now, I want to clarify. I mentioned I, I think there's a couple possible misperceptions about what it would mean to be satisfied in God himself rather than in other things in this world. I want to be, this is a fine line we've got to walk here. And so I want to, I want to address this quickly and try to maybe clear it up if, if, if you're stumbling like I have on this point. First, first, based on this text, please do not buy into the caricature that Christians don't want you to have any fun that they're against this world and its delights, that they're all about suppressing desire and controlling people, never having any fun, looking down on anyone who does. That is not Christianity. It is not the God who invites you to come and drink and buy without money the milk and the wine that give full and free and joyful life. Christianity is appealing to your desires. The problem, Christianity says, is that you have so far placed your desires in the wrong place on the wrong objects, and those objects can't deliver. And so you walk around dissatisfied and empty and waiting to die because you haven't tasted of the only thing that can satisfy you. Christianity, to use Lewis' image, would tell you that you're the child who wants to go on making mud pies because you can't imagine a week at the beach. True satisfaction, a full and free life is possible if you come to God for it. That's misperception one. That's more of a misperception about Christianity. Don't buy into it. It's not about suppressing your desire. It's about fulfilling it, firing it. That's the whole point. I think there's a second issue, though, that needs to be clarified here. I can put it as a question. What's the right connection between satisfaction and God himself, like this text points us to, and the material things in this world? What's the right connection? between being satisfied in God as an end himself and enjoying the things that are in this world. Because one of the things you might think when you first read this language about being satisfied in God for his own sake is that, that it's kind of a purely spiritual satisfaction. That it, that, it, that it means God himself by himself. It's different from the kind of satisfaction and joy we get from, in, from participating in this physical world. I mean, on the one hand, there is danger here. Uh, we know that what, what our author is condemning in, in Israel 
And in us is a tendency to seek satisfaction in anything that isn't God, to use God like some sort of handmade idol to get us the things we really want out of life, to sort of come to him as a genie in a bottle who, rubbed in just the right way, will give us the wishes of our heart. We want God only if he gives us what we really want, comfort, fame, money, sex. He's a means to an end. Useful if he gets us what we want or useless and discardable if he doesn't. Paul put it best, I think. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That is a caution that this text gives us. But there's another side to it. Don't hear the words that your soul may live and think that what we're called to is a satisfaction that has nothing to do with this world. That this world is something to be survived until we can go on and be truly satisfied in the world to come. That misperception takes away the joy we're meant to get from the things God has given to us because he loves us. This isn't a soul versus body verse in verse 3. The word soul here really means all of life. It doesn't translate very well into our English. It, It means everything about you is going to live. It's a full and true and happy life that's possible. And in fact, when you come to God and seek him for his sake... This is, this is a consistent message through all of Christianity in, in, in the teachings of the Bible. If you come to God and seek him for his sake first, then it actually opens up a whole new layer of satisfaction, joy, and desire for the things that he's made. When you come to him for his own sake and take everything else as a gift from him that points back to him, that celebrate, helps us to celebrate him better, then it helps us actually to enjoy the things that he's given us in a deeper and more satisfying way. I think it works exactly like, like sex works in this, in this sense. That, and this is, this is a common testimony from secular and Christian sources alike. If you, if you approach sex as something that is meant to serve your own interests meant to give you the pleasure or the comfort or the security that you're wanting. It means you're going to be demanding. It means you're going to be self-serving. It means that eventually you're going to get bored and you're going to be disappointed. It isn't going to be good sex if it's approached in that way. But if sex is approached instead as an overflow of a relationship with a person who is the end in themselves, the person under God, around whom your whole life is shaped and through whom your life is lived, then sex takes on a whole new kind of pleasure. It opens up for it, an expression of something that's already there and meaningful. And it feeds back into the depth of your connection with this other person. When you pursue the person as the end, then sex is better sex. It's not about denying yourself. It's about enjoying it in the way God meant for it to be enjoyed. And that same thing is true through all of the things that God has made. If you approach food as an end in itself, it is going to let you down. If you are reminded by food of the glory, of the genius and the creativity, of the love of the creator who gave you taste buds and filled this earth with delicious things, then that enjoyment of the physical turns you to an even deeper relationship with the one who made you. The gift become a channel to loving and worshiping the giver well. And you actually enjoy the food in a deeper and better way than you would have otherwise. It's not about suppressing your desire. God wants you to fulfill your desire. He wants you to worship him because he is good enough to fulfill your desire. And what it means 
what it means is that if we lose the things that we love about this world, because they are, they are not the end to which God is just a means, because God is the end, there is not one thing that we love about this world that we cannot do away with, that we cannot do without, should it be taken, so long as we have the God who is supremely beautiful, supremely desirable, supremely joy-giving. I love the way a hymn we sing here here at Trinity uh, puts this. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken as one of my favorites. It says, oh, tis not in grief to harm me while thy love is left to me. If I've got you, because you're the end, then there's nothing in this world that could happen to me or be taken from me that would ultimately shake my stability because it's in you. Oh, t'were not in joy to charm me were that joy unmixed with thee. There is nothing, the psalmist says, on earth that I desire besides thee. I desire all things as a channel to desiring you and fulfilling my desire in you ultimately. That's, that's the message of this text. It's its implication. Be satisfied in him and let the other things we love about this world drive you to him. You'll understand and enjoy them more than you ever thought possible when you were pursuing them for their own sake. And here's the last thing I'll say. This is just a pointer. I just want to point you. It's like a signpost here. Remember what we're doing in this section of our study? It's all about unpacking what is possible because the servant died. Chapter 54, chapter 55, respond to the truth of chapter 53, that he has carried our sorrows and borne our iniquities, and because they define him, they no longer define us. The reason it's possible for us to come to God for this kind of satisfaction is that the servant has cleared the way. He has washed us clean from the sins that rightfully separated us from our maker. And he has opened a channel, a highway, that drives us back to God for the satisfaction we were made to have. This text itself takes us back to the covenant, verse 3, that's possible because the servant has bled for us. It takes us back in verse 7 to the pardon that's available. Your sins have been taken care of if you'll come to God. And that's why you can come to him to drink and to eat and be satisfied. Here's, here's the image I'll give you from one of my favorite commentators on Isaiah, a guy named Alec Motier. He notices in, these, in the first verse even that even though the stuff is free, the language of buying is still used. You notice that? Come and buy. Come and buy. But don't bring any money. There's still commerce going on. There's still a purchase that's been made. And the reason you can come and buy without money and without price is that you can come bringing your own poverty to a transaction completed once and for all. Your ticket, your entry has been paid for you. This is not a soup kitchen. This is a Morton's of Chicago steakhouse dinner when somebody else picks up the tab. There was a steep price, but it has been paid So come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. Come without money, without price. Buy, buy milk, buy wine, because the servant has died, and the servant is risen, and the servant will come again. So come to him. Father, thank you for these life-giving words. We only ask that you would help us to believe them. We ask this every week. 
because it's one thing to read them. It's another thing to understand them in a new way, more depth. It is another thing altogether to live like these words are true. And every single one of us struggles with that. The sad reality is the depth of our poverty is such that not only can we not perform our way into your favor, we can't even believe in you unless you give us faith. And so this morning we come to you empty-handed, penniless, and thirsty. And we ask that you would satisfy the desires of our heart by giving us yourself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.